Welcome to Jawbone with Dr. J and Dr. J. I'm John Monza, Professor of Strategy at the Joint Advanced Warfighting School, and I am joined by Dr. John Michael Sheck, Professor of Theory and History at JAWS. John, we've got a great show today, and I'm sure we're going to get a lot of listener feedback because we're going to talk today about the three most overrated generals. This isn't worse generals, just the most overrated generals. And this is a great uh, follow-up to the one we did a few weeks ago of greatest generals. So, John, I'm going to turn it over to you to begin the discussion. Yeah, so this is our first throwback episode. I don't remember what number it was, but we had an episode on our top greatest or best field commanders, which we all listed. They were all, we all, both you and I had the great Genghis Khan is number one and that we did not talk about. So we did actually get a lot of feedback. Um, I got some fan mail, some folks asking why you didn't have certain air force officers. Uh, should we have gone more with less American generals, things like that. And I got a few questions from all of our uh, top listeners about the worst general of all time. Before we we anger everyone, we wanted to do most overrated. Now, before we set up the parameters of what, how did you define, and we have a list, we're only doing three, we're not doing five each or three each. What we talked about was, when we say overrated, Dr. Monza, what does that mean to you? So to me, it means, one, the general has to be well-known. They have to be popular in popular culture or you know, in the, the contemporary context, people know who they are. Uh, but often, in my mind, people know who these generals are and they have a skewed view of who they are and how they performed based on popular culture. There you go. So we avoided, there may be some names, uh, and we'll, we'll do an honorable mention list, that generals that are, did not make overrated lists because we deem them to be either properly rated or largely irrelevant. So these are generals, commanders that I think the average American would know. Our producer Rob even says he knows all these generals. I kind of feel like, you know, Hogan's Heroes back in the day. I feel like the sergeant there is that says, I know nothing. Yeah. All right, we're going to edit all <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, I'm a terrible student. <laughs> John, let's dig in, though. It's yep. enough of an intro. Get on it. Oh, I'm leading off? I thought, okay. Go ahead. All right. All right, so we're going to go from... We have three overrated commanders. I guess we shouldn't say generals. No, they're all generals, aren't they? Yeah, there you go. All right, number three, third most overrated general. He's very famous around these parts. He's buried not too far away. Every year, Jaws goes to his museum, memorial, and that would be General Douglas MacArthur. All right, so let me jump in on MacArthur. Because he is like a legend. There's this whole lore around MacArthur. And he certainly, I believe, enjoyed playing the part with his pipe and his, his rumpled uniform and associated rumpled hat. So people love the pictures of MacArthur. But in my mind, there are two mistakes that MacArthur made that resulted in the deaths of thousands of American soldiers that cannot be overlooked. And the first one was in the Philippines after Pearl Harbor. He was surprised by the Japanese. And you know, I would have gotten a, given him a pass on this if it were 90 minutes after Pearl Harbor, but this is the next day, John. 
He is surprised by the Japanese when they come. And then he has not prepared at all for the Japanese onslaught that came. And we end up with tens of thousands of Americans stuck on on, uh, Bataan. And they end up participating in the famous Bataan death march after MacArthur has split and saved himself. So I get the whole political pressure around that, but his defense in that case and the fact that he was surprised is inexcusable. And then the second one is in the Korean War where, yeah, he, he does a great job with the landings at Incheon and a super gutsy move, but he refuses to listen to the intelligence people around him. And as he pushes his forces farther and farther north, to the the border with China, he is surprised by the Chinese when they come pouring across in mass. And the defeat of the Eighth Army in North Korea is one of the worst defeats in the history of the United States military. So, John, over to you. All right. So, take these apart. We'll t- focus on the Philippines first. And I, I have no strong disagreement with you, even though we are just feet away from the MacArthur Auditorium here in parts unknown. The Philippines is particularly bad. We don't talk a lot about intel on this podcast, but in 1941, it comes after the United States puts an embargo on oil to Japan, everyone knows the Japanese are going to attack. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And it's not even that much a matter of where because they're going to hit the Philippines, we know, and some of the British possessions, Singapore, which they will. Hawaii, Pearl Harbor, is actually not high on that list. There's a belief that the Japanese couldn't get there. If they tried to get there, they would be detected before they could hit. And, well, they were wrong. But the Philippines particularly bad because MacArthur knew the Japanese were coming. He knew Pearl Harbor had happened. And what does he do to prepare for this? He lines all his aircraft up wing to wing where they can all be destroyed at one time. PME in action. He, that's what he does. And uh, the Philippines falls apart. He then is, he famously flees, says he shall return. And I think you'll see kind of with all three of these generals we mentioned is they, and John, you mentioned it, they kind of fit the image. They play up this part of them as a general. And MacArthur was, was very good at that. Then we talk about uh, the Korean War. Now, Before we get to the Chinese involvement, we have MacArthur probably his greatest feat, which is the Incheon invasion, the amphibious landing that goes about as well as it possibly could. This was a very much a MacArthur idea planned by his staff. And for a couple weeks, it looks like they're going to win the war. Korea will be united. And then the Chinese decide to cross the border. And then, as you said, the 8th Army gets pretty much destroyed now in both cases we'll say the philippines he gets a medal of honor korea by the time the korean war happens macarthur is a well-known name hero of world war ii still has his critics but he still has some ties to the political establishment in washington particularly the republican party and his downfall will be when Truman decides to get rid of him. If you go to the MacArthur Museum Memorial in Norfolk, they will talk all about this and give a little bit more context than we did. But for all these reasons, I think fairly, accurately, historically, strategically accurate, MacArthur, third most overrated general. Strong concurrence from my side. All right, John, let's move to number number two. two. 
All right, so number two, we're we're moving away from, I guess a a still a living, breathing, retired general Saint David Petraeus himself is the second most overrated general, uh, according to our epic podcast list. John, so General Petraeus, I think very much fits this uh, same mold as MacArthur. He looks the part. He talks the part. And I do believe he was effective, but as John said, he's almost now lionized um, as a saint, as this guru when it comes to counterinsurgency. But I disagree with the tenets of the counterinsurgency (laughs) manual that he is so famous for. There's just way too much credit given to Petraeus and his role in the defeat of the the Sunni resistance in Iraq, and then later, you know, his attempts to apply that coin manual in Afghanistan. Yeah, good. So when we talk about coin, which you and I have both worked on. Uh, we should stop saying coin, though. Counterinsurgency. But no, for that, all, for that, those that, listeners who don't know what coin is. Well, it's called counterinsurgency now. If we're taking the Petraeus version of counterinsurgency, it would be called population-centric counterinsurgency, which means what, Dr. Monza? Well, this is my problem with the counterinsurgency manual and the doctrine that Petraeus was such a proponent of. If you take a place like Afghanistan and try to apply it, it, it takes this unbelievable effort. You are pushing every button in that society. And this is what we ended up doing in Afghanistan. We are paying all the teachers. We have advisors helping them with farming. We are paying all the government employees. You are you're not just trying to kill insurgents. You are focusing on making life better for the population. The problem is it is so expensive that it's unsustainable. And this is a level of effort that I think would only be appropriate if there were an insurgency perhaps in Canada or Mexico and it was mm-hmm. of such great importance to the United States to defeat it that we'd be willing to expend a massive side of our economy in support of defeating that insurgency. But when you're talking about applying it in a place like Afghanistan, a landlocked country of no significance in South Asia, then applying that kind of doctrine and that level of effort doesn't work and it didn't work and you end up just expending as we did there a trillion dollars of resources and a lot of blood and limbs of american soldiers again giving the prc a 20-year time to build up in the south pacific now taking the historical side the coin manual the counterinsurgency manual uh that has now been superseded was it's called field manual 3-24 and the history behind that is after the invasion of iraq uh afghanistan around 05 is beginning to heat up again the the powers that be in dod say we don't have a good counterinsurgency doctrine we need to relook at it now this is the problem with some of their the doctrine is that they ignored the vast amount of doctrine we already had and petraeus was then a the three-star lieutenant general that helped write that again it was written by other hundreds of folks written in about a year and that manual became a bestseller and it became very dogmatic very popular with politicians as well Um, and actually if you look at general petraeus's career particularly when he was a three-star in iraq pretty 
conventional door-to-door kind of kicking in stuff. And what happens is maybe it's the narrative that develops that this is how you win counterinsurgency is by handing out, you know, bubble gum, soccer balls, and money and building things, and that eventually it will take hold. Um, people will stick to this as evidence mounts that it's not working. And as we see now in 2024, where is Afghanistan right now? Same location led by, that's right, the Taliban. Yeah, and this is where coin counterinsurgency in that manual, it became almost like a religion. And the coin denistas, as we ca- mm. call them, who followed this religion, you couldn't rationally speak to them because they held these beliefs that uh, this manual w- was almost like the Bible when it came to yep. to fighting insurgents. And you saw it in professional military ed for the, about 10 years. Um, and if you spoke out against it, you did so at your own risk. And eventually, what I hope we don't lose is, you know, the, that's is why counterinsurgency is going to happen again. But the next time we don't reinvent the wheel. And you do see it throughout counterinsurgency history, particularly with the British, which is where we borrowed most of our examples from. Every time there's a big counterinsurgency, we raise up some general. He descends from the heavens and tells us this is the way to do it. Um, and the British used Malaya, which was successful. But if you look at population-centric coin, it can work, but it's not the only way. It's not the only thing. Well, we and should do, we maybe do two points, John, a yep. follow-up on an episode on counterinsurgency. Oh, we should do an I Hate Coin episode. Would be Which delightful. would be great. And then, you know, we had kicked around General Westmoreland yep. uh, for this podcast, but really he doesn't fit the bill because he's not overrated. He's properly rated. He's properly rated as a, a failed general leading a counterinsurgency campaign all right john move to number three well no no, number one we're going well okay however you want to do it so number one and before i state this i will say i am not a native born virginian however i did go to school here the most overrated general is robert e lee of the defeated confederate states of america you better start looking under your car. For that's that's fine. And, um, and I know this is the, the, Lee's been in the news with all the statues. Uh, this is largely not connected to that. This is a objective, historically accurate, strategically minded overview of Robert E. Lee's career and why he's the most overrated. And Robert E. Lee, if we were to go ask M- Americans around the world, not just Virginia, name me one Civil War general. Who would they name? Robert E. Lee. Robert E. Lee, and then maybe Stonewall Jackson. Nowhere are they going to put Ulysses, Ulysses S. Grant, Sherman, Sheridan, uh, George Thomas. It's all going to be Bobby Lee. Now, John, do you want to start with why we've selected Robert E. Lee as the most overrated general? Well, in my mind, you know, he was a great tactical commander, maybe a great operational commander. And certainly exploited the resources that he had and especially exploited the bad generalship that was seen early in the Civil War from the Union side. But he made in particular one massive strategic mistake where he decided to go on the offense and ended up in Gettysburg where he lost the war. Oh, he lost war. All right, so we'll we'll take this out of our American history from high school class. So Robert E. Lee, when the war begins, he is just a general. 
He is, and this is where I think most Americans get it wrong too, is he was just an army commander. He was not in charge of all Confederate forces. In fact, he's an advisor to the Confederate president, and he recommends a fairly defensive strategy, namely in the defense of Richmond. But that's not going to work politically, culturally, socially, all those reasons. Now, here's why I would overrate Lee. It's first of all, he's held up as this great general. He is, as, as you mentioned correctly, a very excellent tactical officer uh operationally even he's very good but i give a couple case in points case studies on why he's not first one um is going to be the great battle of chancellorsville which jaws will be returning to next academic year um, chancellorsville is considered lee's austerlitz which is napoleon's great victory it's where he gets all this credit for dividing up his army attacking 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 the problem with that offensive mentality is Lee's loses 25% of his force. And Lee himself even says, I can't afford more Chancellorsvilles. So before we even get to Gettysburg, he just had a victory tactically, operationally, where he lost 25% of his forces. Now, Dr. Mons is an elite strategist. Is it a win if you lose 25% of your forces and you can't build up your force. Well, what it shows is, you know, you can win battles, and that's important uh, when you're fighting a war, but you have to keep your eye on the objective and in particular on the enemy's strengths. And in this case, as the North continued to gear up and the massive advantage they had in industrial capability, in manpower, Lee had to, as a strategic leader, have seen that or the war was predetermined in the outcome. And maybe that's another episode we'll have. I will make a compelling case why the American Civil War was going to ultimately lead to Union victory. Um, now, going back to Lee's, you mentioned Gettysburg, which is where, again, if you ask most Americans, name one battle of the Civil War, they mention Gettysburg. It's an important battle, not the most important. But at Gettysburg, this is where tactically Lee really begins to lose it, and that's Pickett's Charge. And that's where, too, after that battle, in, in conjunction with Chancellorsville, he's lost over 50% of his force. He does do a good tactical job of on the defense against uh, U.S. Grant later on in the war. But by that point, it does seem that it's his delay in the inevitable, and eventually they get to Appomattox, and that's it. John, can I jump in yes. with a summary of Gettysburg? Yes. Oh, this would be good. Yeah. Yep, go ahead. So Lee first tries to go around the left flank and he fails and then he decides to try to go around the right flank and he fails and then he says what the hell let's just go up the middle and lose the war there you go and that's why dr mons is a elite strategist so but that's it's well it's not wrong um and i i hope the few civil war historians that are unemployed looking for jobs can listen to this and and chime in but lee then is held up after the war ends uh, he lives five more years, becomes president of a university. Uh, he's the first one to develop PLOs and CLOs, at least I think. And um, he then becomes kind of deified in the South, and that has spread over the last hundred-some years uh, all around the United States. You see the statues, and you see how Lee is always held up, even in certain buildings still, is like how this is how a great commander should be. But I don't think it's something we – we could study him and realize, hey, what well, maybe wasn't that great. In fact, dare I say, highly overrated. 
Wow. All right, John, I know you have a few honorable mentions you want to throw out before we wrap up this episode. So some of these are, are things to think about to anger certain people. So I was thinking of names, and this was also, I asked two other historians, other folks, I got buddies that, that don't really know history, but they, you know, they're interested in it. So honorable mentions, I would put Stonewall Jackson is quite overrated. He had a tendency to fall asleep before big operations and was late. He was late. calm, cool, and collected. Yeah, huh? Yeah, something like that. Always late during seven days in Chancellorsville. Had he not overslept, maybe he survives that war. I would also shot by his own men. Yep. I might point out. I would also add, though. Again, I think he's properly rated now. But at one point, Omar Bradley, I would argue, was the most overrated general of World War II. I had a buddy of mine actually text and say George Washington is overrated, and somewhere Dr. Craig Smith is crying in a corner. I think Washington, though, is properly kind of rated. Everyone, even Craig, was, you know, he, he's not this Napoleonic-like figure, but he strategically. He was exceptional. Yes. So, so I would actually throw yeah. him in a different category of properly rated, Jones? underrated. Oh, underrated, oh, not overrated. I don't know if I can do that. Then I would also consider a name that John we've talked about offline is Erwin Rommel as being overrated. Not that he was bad, but I think he is also then held up, particularly within PME, as like you just do what Rommel did. I'm like, we got to stop lionizing generals that lose. Um, and then I would throw in or honorable mention P.T. Michael Sheck once again. So there you go. Is that your uncle? Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. Well, properly. Ne- nepotism is alive and well at the Joint Advanced Warfighting School. Nothing wrong. All right, John. Let's wrap up this episode. Uh, so if you have any feedback or want to defend Bobby Lee, Dave Petraeus, I don't think we'll get too many MacArthur supporters. Just remember, they would have made the greatest generals list had they read their Carl von Clausewitz.